This is the Tournament of Champions Finals Part 2. If you haven't checked out Part 1, I'd go back and check it out. It was great. Steve and Jeremy progressed to the finals matchup. David Gans is picking the songs. He's going to play three songs, and whoever has the lower aggregate score wins the Tournament of Champions. Obviously, if there's a tie, we'll just play more songs. Enjoy. So that was the jam out of a comes a time at the Orpheum Theater in San Francisco on July 17th, 1976. Beautiful pick. David, tell us about that one. I love 76. There's so much good music going on in that time. They were really listening to each other. I I chose this in particular because it's just, it got released a couple of years ago, finally, uh, and I've always thought it was one of my favorite moments of the year. And I actually have something I want to read for you. I, As I said earlier, I've spoken to a lot of musicians about this music for a couple of different book projects. And I want to read from you a conversation I had with Peter Lavazzoli a few years ago. Uh, Peter is, I, I met him when he was a drummer of uh, Crazy Fingers in South Florida, where he still, he still plays with them when he's not doing this other stuff. But he toured with the JGB for quite a while, Melvin and the JGB. Uh, he tours as part of the um, the, the Gilmore Project. And uh, he played on O'Teal Burbage's beautiful new record, Lovely View of Heaven. And I think he plays in O'Teal's live band from time to time as well. So I'm going to read, and he's written a couple of books. He wrote a wonderful book called By Ravi, A History of Indian Music in America. Uh, and I'm going to read to you what Peter told me about this. 76 is different. Just like 75, 75 and 76, Mickey is back, but they're still in that kind of blues for Olive phase where it still has a little bit of that jazzy fluidity that was there during the era when Mickey was not there. You can still hear traces of 73 and 74 in the 76 Grateful Dead during like playing in the band. In 76, they had a lot of great segues where they were weaving a lot of things in and out of each other. Slipknot and Eyes of the World and Dancing. Phil is still playing with a lot of fluidity in 76. The drummers are both still playing with a lot of dynamics. Keith is still playing a lot more. So I would say to people, don't overlook 76 for the jazzier side of the Dead's playing. They started to lose that in 77, but you still heard a lot of these jazzy dynamics in 76 with the rhythm section. It's a lot more fluid. Keith, Phil, the drummers, there's a lot of give and take and a lot of sensitivity there. The show that really epitomizes that for me is from the Orpheum in San Francisco from the July 76 run, the second to last show of the tour. It's my favorite show of the year. They come out of Comes a Time with this incredible jam that leads into the other one. What they do is, this is the first time this happened with Comes a Time. They did two versions of Comes a Time before this in June. Jerry finishes singing the song and they're playing the F-sharp minor and G back and forth. And then Phil starts putting a D note on top of the F-sharp minor, which kind of make it like a D major seventh. Then he would play an A under the G, almost like a reverse tighten-up progression. They hinted at it on June 12th in Boston and at the Tower Theater on June 22nd. 
these versions, they come out, it comes a time and start flirting with that jam, but then they bring the song to a close very quickly and they don't go anywhere with it. On 717, this is this is has a point, actually, friends. On 717, they go all out with it. It's a beautiful comes a time. Coming out of it, Phil plays a D and A back and forth while the others are going F sharp minor G. It really totally takes the jam to an amazing place. They stick with that theme that Phil brings in, and they really start working with that. Now Jerry is changing what he's playing in response to that. It takes on a whole different flavor, and then Phil changes again. Now he goes from D to G instead of A, which gives it more of a minor feel. That lasts for a couple minutes, and then they go into an 11 jam. Very unusual. It's not like they're playing the chords of the 11, but they're playing like the comes of time jam in an 11-beat cycle. Phil sets that up, signaling beats 10 and 11. The drummers pick up on that right away, and all of a sudden it's the same chord progression, but now they're doing it in an 11-beat cycle. It's another one of those moments. You don't plan that kind of thing. It just comes out, like that Miami show 62374 where U.S. Blues just comes out. This jam goes on for a good while, and it's always riveting. It's always fascinating what they're doing. And finally, they back off that. Then they go into the other one. So there's so much going on in this music, and it's really amazing to talk with people that listen so closely to it. And Pete's one of those guys, you know. And I just thought that it's so, you know, you, you can listen to so much Grateful Dead music in that kind of detail and really hear the conversation. Another interesting way to, to to evaluate that is to listen to the several different mixes of, of the 227-69 Dark Star, originally mixed by Bob and Betty for Live Dead, and then later mixed at least once more for the uh, uh, Fillmore West 69 box set. And I think it might have been mixed once more for something else. And... and there's a lot of sculpting that goes on to to take out the the loose parts of various things when you have the opportunity to go back. But the, the, these people are, as Owsley said when he met these people, they were the smartest you know group of people he'd ever come across, and that they were having this conversation on a super high level. And this thing that I chose for that reason, because it is that conversation on a high level, and I had a scrap of conversation to share with you about it. Yeah, that is high level. I feel like your class is filling up as people listen. Uh, <laughs> do you think any members of the band could articulate what they heard of their own recording the way he just did, or have any interest I, in it? I, I, I well, that the latter is probably harder and harder to happen as they get older, and this stuff both recedes into history and becomes, you know, a smaller and smaller part of their whole. I mean, remember Bob Weir's probably played more gigs than any other human being in history. Except for the guy at the piano bar down here in Oakland who played the same gig for 60 years or something. But um, uh, I don't know. I have on occasion, I once was, I had Phil Lesh at KPFA. And I played that thing that got released on the So Many Roads box set as the beautiful jam. It's just a few minutes of music coming out of uh, the end of the first wharf rat the Grateful Dead ever played and going back into the second half of Dark Star. And it's just this absolutely stunning little stretch of music that just makes you cry. And I always loved it. And I pulled it out and I identified it. And when we got hired to do the box set, it was like at the very top of my list of stuff. You know, we got to play this little bit. And everybody agreed and we couldn't, you know, it wasn't didn't need to be part of the the whole show, although it all got released years later. They mixed that 21871 show and released it as bonus material on one of the, like a American Beauty reissue or something like that. But uh, it, it just, they, you know. Yeah. He said you can't plan it. It just has to happen. I know you mentioned 75 and 76 in that passage, and Steve gets 76 and Jeremy gets 75. Steve, hell of a poll. Talk to us. Uh, I'm not familiar with that run of shows. Um, that was beautiful. I will have to go check that out. Um, but I, I definitely heard the the Travis Bean guitar and Keith's piano tone. And I heard kind of what from that bit you read, David, um, you know, some of the jazzy elements were there that weren't there in 77. I heard two drummers. Um, so that pretty much made it 76. Good call. Yeah, great pull. Jeremy, 75. We get a lot of 75 guesses. What was your uh, thought process there? 
this one like completely threw me off and i was like i don't know that was like it was like the david lynch of, of grateful dead clips it was like really surreal and and i'd never heard anything like that even though 76 is like one of my favorite years i'd never heard that one and it felt like some weird early version of like uh eyes of the world but then also i could recognize like the travis bean guitar and so I really couldn't place it. So I figured it might be like some weird. Uh, um, I, I figured it might be one of like uh, those few 75 shows. I've only really listened to one from the vault, I think. I don't know if I've listened to any of the other four, uh, three or four. I forget how many. There's like four or five. You got to check shows. out. You you got to check out the keys are one because it's okay. all weird. <laughs> OK, so I was. Yeah. yeah, there's just like a lot of weirdness there that I was not used to. Uh, and so I thought it just might be some some rare gem, but I definitely am going to have to check that out as well. Um, and to answer your earlier question, Mike, I think, I think they would be able to articulate that kind of stuff. Like the, the chord, the chords and like what, um, Phil is playing under it. I, but yeah, I don't know if they really, whether or not they would ever spend time doing that. I think my intuition and guess would probably be that they wouldn't. And that, it's just something that happened and they would, you know, kind of approach each next show with like a somewhat of a clean slate. That's kind of how I imagine it, well, um, that I, they wouldn't really dwell on these things I, all that I, much. I, I don't I don't think it's I don't think dwelling is the issue. In the early days, they listened back to their performances a lot. Bear would, you know, they'd schlep a, a, a boombox or something around and they would listen to Bear's recordings after the show. They were critiquing their performance. They were harvesting ideas that might be, you know, be the nut of something new. And and they were perfecting, Bear was perfecting his mixes and they were perfecting their their communication and stuff. So they would review the music a lot. By the time I started spending time with them in the 80s, you know, it's like all the shit had started blurring together. And that even happened to me. I've been a working musician for 50 years and I, I eventually... They eventually started blowing together for me too. I mean, you can't, you just, you know, certain moments do stick out in your life, but it's very hard to differentiate. And it's true for that. It's sort of more important and more monumental to us. It's just their life. You know, I, I, you know, I think we're the ones that cherish it. They, they cherish having done it, I think, you know, and, and like that, but I don't think that they're, want to go back like bobby in particular is so busy doing this his new stuff you know it's you can't get him to go back and, and revisit the past he's busy forging new uh paths you don't think he goes home at the end of the night and throws on cornell 77 and... <laughs> would you <laughs> i review my performance i play a live show every day online every afternoon at four o'clock except i mean i'm I, with certain exceptions various but i've been doing it for more than three years because of the pandemic and I actually review my my performances most evenings because I'm an improvisational musician and a looper and I'm doing new things every single time. So I'll go to the spots where the new stuff is happening and review that and find out how it worked. And and hear if, you know, I'm I don't sit there and go, oh, I'm gonna transcribe this little melody and integrate it into a, a composition. But a lot of times hearing something back just plants it in your head again so you can say, oh, I could build on that. So when they were the fingers on a hand and they were traveling together in vans and sleeping, you know, three to a hotel room and shit. Yeah, they did review this stuff really, really closely and critique each other's performances and stuff. And I think part of that is is what drove like Weir to make himself into a much more formidable composer than he was when he walked into that scene. Yeah, and I can't re recommend uh, David's performances enough. I I watch them on Twitter. I'm sure it's more than on one. You know, it's on Facebook, and oh, on YouTube, and Facebook, YouTube. and an interesting platform called Streamstock.tv where you can watch shows in groups of people. Yeah, it's that perfect time of day when I usually kind of go in delirious answering emails at work, and you pop on, and it's a real refreshing change of pace. That's so great. It's like, you know, you can listen to me or you can listen to the evening news. I sort of feel like I'm providing an escape or something. But I, I also feel like it's I did an interview with the San Francisco Chronicle a couple of years ago, and he fished a line out of the interview and said uh, that I called it a, a, a piano bar for hippies. 
And that's kind of what I think it is. I'm playing like old familiar tunes from the 70s and I play Grateful Dead songs and I play my own stuff and I play uh, loop jams and I improvise a lot. And I play some weird song that fished up out of my brain radio from 60 years ago. That'll come up every once in a while and I'll learn a song and play like that. So it really is just whatever I feel like playing in a given afternoon. But it's been amazingly good for my chops and kept me in touch with an audience as well. Well, that link will be in the show notes. Okay, Steve has zero points. Jeremy has one point because he was one year off, which means Steve is up by one year. There's two songs left. Let's hear the second song of the finals. Okay, 13 at Fillmore West in San Francisco on March 1st, 1969. Definitely our first 13 on Guest of the Year. Tell us about that one, David. Well, I don't know if it actually has a, a, a title or not, but it appeared a number of times. I think I think it was always coming out of New Potato Caboose, but I can't say for sure. I've heard several of these. Uh, and it's just, it's a 13 beat thing. One, two, three, one, two, three, one, two, three, one, two, three, four, one, two, three, one, two, three. And it was, it was part of the, uh, I, I'm guessing it was Phil's composition because it's him driving the jam or the, the, the piece. Um, I don't know anything more about it. I never really had a chance to ask him if, you know, what it was, but I think it was just one of those tropes that came up similar to the, what came to be known for better and for worse as the um, feeling groovy jam, you know, in the 74, 73 and 74 China jams, blah, blah, blah. It appeared and then it, you know, wandered off as some of these things do, because it. I think it was an interesting thing to do, but of limited creative value, because once you've mastered it, then it's just a matter of, you know, it's kind of like rubbing your stomach and, and tapping your head at the same time. 13B. I mean, Grateful Dead specialized in this shit. I mean, they had the 11. Bobby wrote three or four masterpieces in in seven beats, and he had playing in the band in 10 beats and stuff. So doing a 13. And there's other stuff, too. Like, I forget the exact time signature of uh, Stronger Than Dirt or, you know, the, one of the bits in on... Um, Blues for Allah is also in an odd time signature. But um, they they specialized in that stuff. But I think they also realized, Jerry once said, I think later, that they stopped doing the 11 because it kind of had limited horizons. Sticking with the meter didn't foster uh, creativity and, you know, flights of new, of invention. So it, they kind of dropped it after a while. And I think this was also that thing. Okay, well, we nailed that. And, uh, you know, maybe it just maybe just Phil forgot about it after getting it done a few times. I, it's hard to say. I once listened to like all the dark stars in history. Literally, uh, I spent for this book project that might some still happen someday. I listened to hundreds and hundreds of dark stars and sort of evaluated each one and started mapping the progression of various tropes through it and stuff. And I think one of the most significant moments in the history of Dark Star was when Pigpen stopped going 
<laughs> all through the whole fucking thing because it allow it just you know it's like a somebody had draw, drawing a dotted line across the mona lisa or something in a funny way so uh, it it just it freed the improvisation when when the the ostinato was abandoned but there it, it, things came up ways of interacting of a melodic idea a riff jerry was doing on the guitar they would appear they would evolve and then they would wander off and be replaced by other stuff and in a way that like dark star is this ongoing tapestry if you think of it as one continuous piece of music that just had all these voices weaving through it at various times so tom constanton said that once in an interview back in the 90s he said i don't i think of dark star as more of a place than a piece of music that you just kind of visit and it's fun to think of Dark Star as always going on somewhere, you know? Yeah. Awesome pick. And Jeremy got it exactly 1969. Steve guessed 68. Jeremy, why 69? Um, it sounded like, you know, um, just generally 60s, I guess. I don't know. But and and like, like a distorted, really distorted, heavy, like bass. Um and a more gain heavy like uh guitar tone from from Jerry and stuff and then like also the guitar sounded slightly out of tune which i've noticed from like the six, like 69 i guess um just kind of sounded like the the recording quality as well sounded pretty crisp like kind of like like uh live dead similar to that sound quality that was pretty much it i feel like yeah i i would assume a 68 would the sound quality would be a little worse i don't know, really know how to be more specific than that but yeah you are right to deduce the differences in quality between 68 and 69 because it was at the beginning of 69 that the 16-track tape recorder appeared. Very famously, Ron Wickersham at, uh, was working at uh, Ampex and, and helped make it available for these guys. And they, there were stories of them humping it up the stairs at the Carousel Ballroom, etc. And... Um, and and so they were working with eight tracks and two tracks before that. So most of the recordings are simpler because they were either mixed live to fewer tracks, or, or a lot of stuff was missing from the uh, from the recordings. And they did get more. You know, starting in early '69, they had a 16-track machine available to them. I think a lot more often. Wow, there you have it, Steve. '68. I associate that Phil face lick riff with uh two from the vault from the shrine in la in 68 that's where i first heard that and so i just that's where my head was like oh that's 68 and those those recordings that that the mastering they did on that is phenomenal those were eight track that was eight track masters i remember don pearson the late don pearson wrote an interesting story about how they made a model of the stage and knew the distances of things from the from the delays between tracks and i guess they were able to correct some of that and make a more coherent stereo mix from those recordings that that's another the grateful dead story is the is a story of the progression of technology in service of art for all these years and the dead have always taken advantage they always wanted to push that stuff obviously sound systems and stuff but they were ready to take advantage of new technology that's why they hired Bob Braylove to get him up to speed on uh, on uh, MIDI interfaces so they could all play trumpet through the guitar and stuff. Well, I don't know. I don't remember exactly the year that Two from the Vault came out, but the, was it Sonic Solutions that Pearson used? Because the, the imaging of the stereo tracks is so detailed that with good quality headphones on, you can hear like the soundstage is different between the two nights. The little they because they had to tear everything down and put everything back, and you can actually hear that the amps are just in slightly different places. It's just it's amazing. I don't I don't think they mixed on Sonic Multitrack. That was not Sonic Solutions wound up being better for stereo mastering. I'm I'm a Sonic user and have been since 1992. What they probably did, I can't remember when this happened, but it, they certainly must have loaded it into a computer and used a digital workstation to mix it but i don't remember when it happened so i you know in as every every few years this this the technology has gotten better and better and better nowadays there's this thing called plangent process as you see it mentioned on most of the modern releases that is a technology that they go in that all analog recordings have what's called the bias tone there's a very very low volume and high frequency tone 
that is sent along with the music onto the tape head. And it's the bias that helps create, it makes it possible to encode information in this format. And this guy figured out that even though it's super low level, it's a consistent signal of a known frequency that's on the entire tape. So they they make a super high bandwidth transfer of the audio recording, go in there and find the bias tone and re-clock the, the audio signal so to get rid of the flutter and wow of analog tape. So there's this very subtle but very important clarifying of music that's being done. And that's only in the last, I don't know, 10 or 10 or years, maybe. It's an app they call Plangent Processes out of around the Boston area. And uh, it's fascinating what they do. And it's an important ad, uh, um, addition. But again, every few years, there becomes a new way to do this. I just took... Uh, my first record was recorded on ADATs, which is a really, really, really troublesome recording medium. But one of my COVID projects was to go get the ADATs and transfer the whole thing into the computer and remix the record, taking advantage of 25 years worth of new technology and my maturing musicianship and stuff. So we remastered and remixed the entire record uh, using all that. So it's a lot of these things. Like, And Bobby just redid um, Ace. He did a new mix of Ace. And he did that by taking the multi-track masters, loading them into a computer, running them through the plangent thing to correct the time base, and then remixing using all these modern tools. You can have, you now have like amazing range of ambiences. You can create reverb chambers like the fucking sarcophagus in the pyramid and things like that and, and, and you know and so the every new generation of technology makes possible some refinements of the audio recordings from previous times brilliant that's cool bobby to be open to going and taking a look well tournament of champions has come down to a tie going into the final song wow uh, these guys are only one year off across two songs. And if you thought the next song was going to be a touch of gray, you'd be wrong. Uh, let's hear it. So that was a jam at the Portland Memorial Coliseum in Portland, Oregon on May 19th, 1974. David, yeah, tell us about that one. Well, one thing I want you to know about it is that this is the first tape I ever got out of the vault. When I, when I, they gave me access in 1985, this was the first tape I went for because I was at the show. And there was, there was only one, I'd only ever heard one audience tape and it was a messed up tape because the guy had a brand new TC-152 and he didn't realize that he should have used the pause button instead of stopping and starting every time. So every song has a sort of a weird tape glitch at the beginning. So there was just a crappy audience tape of it for years and I wanted to hear it again because I loved the show so very much. 
So when I first got access to the vault in 1985, which, by the way, involved Willie the Gate opening the vault and wandering away and leaving me in there to do whatever I wanted. A couple of a few months later, Dick Lavala was hired to be the archivist, and then we started working together on it. And he was, you know, he supervised my visits and stuff, and it was all fine. We had a great time doing it. But anyway, that was one of the first song. That was the first tape I ever got out of the vault, and I got it out because I just freaking loved that jam. It was a great 1974 show, which was released a few years ago on a box set, the Pacific Northwest 73-74 set. It was one of six shows, amazing box set from a tremendous period in Grateful Dead history. And this particular set is my favorite. They play whatever the usual stuff, you know, the greatest story of birth or whatever in the beginning of the second set. And then something goes wrong and they play Tico Tico while the amp's getting fixed or whatever. And then they launch into this trucking and it's just a kick-ass trucking. And coming out of this trucking, they go off into these jams. And I, let me see if I, I don't want to get the, the list, the order of songs wrong. No, that's really all there is to it. Trucking, jam, mind left, body jam, not fade away, going down the road, feeling bad. But they went through what you just heard was getting what they call the mind left body jam on the list. But it, there was just it went on for a really long time and it went through a lot of different phases. And Jerry was using that fuzz on his guitar, which was fairly rare for that time. And everybody else was just, you know, Kreutzmann in his fucking prime. Keith, everybody was, you know, just doing what they did at the top of their game in that stretch in front of the wall of sound. And it just got better and better and better. The, the way they went, the jams went, and then as they resolved into songs, they did so in fascinating ways. The way, by the time they finally got to Not Fade Away, we'd been through a, a couple of, you know, orbited a couple other planets along the way. And then the way they get into Not Fade, or uh, Going Down the Road Feeling Bad later is also very cool. And it all just kind of winds down into a pretty monumental one more Saturday night to end the set. So it's just a, 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 a top 10 uh, sequence of Grateful Dead music that I would recommend to everybody to appreciate what this band did at their best. I'm just imagining you walking out of the vault holding that reel. It's like a big old smile. Well, but, but walking out of the vault with it was cool, but getting to play it on radio and turn people onto it. You know, my job for 38 years now has been turning people onto the Grateful Dead through a medium that they can get for free. You know, if people, I've, one of the, my favorite things in my life and my travels is meeting people who say, I'm a deadhead because of you. You know, they, they stumbled across it on WXRT or something, you know. And I usually say, I hope your parents have forgiven me. <laughs> <laughs> my mom's gonna listen to this and so she'll appreciate that i assure you <laughs> my dad too <laughs> well these guys are pretty incredible they both got 74 uh we're going to another song jeremy what'd you hear to me 73 and 74 sound pretty similar usually like i could usually identify those but within those two it can be kind of tricky to to discern but that yeah, that like fuzz on Jerry's guitar, I did not really associate with that era, um, and so I thought it might be the you know the latter of those two years because it might have been more of a new development, um, and I guess like I forget I can't remember if um, I think Keith plays like a Rhodes piano piano um, in both of those years seventy three and seventy four, but I for some reason associate it more with seventy four, um, so yeah, that's that's what. I went with that was a great clip though. Like I love how like Bill is just like all over the place in a, in a good way though. Like he's just like going crazy. And Donna Jean told me that she thought that Kreutzmann had like one limb attached to each of the guys in the band that he could respond to what anybody was doing. You know, he was paying attention to all of them and attuned to all of them. Love that. Steve also seventy four. Talk to us. I actually that the fuzz tone helped a lot and uh bobby's was an es335 that has a very distinct tone um and uh yeah and love a good mind left body jam all right before we go on to the tie-breaking fourth song of the finals david we ask everyone who comes on how they got into the dead how did you get into the dead uh, I was a young singer-songwriter wannabe in san jose california um still 
pretending to go to college. And my, I, I was, uh, I, I'd been writing songs with a guy I met in high school, and we had gone to San Jose State together, and we were continuing to write songs together. And he started telling me all about the Grateful Dead, and they were the, you know, the. He kept saying they were the second greatest rock and roll band in the world because everybody, because Sam Cutler and the, you know, and uh, had introduced the Rolling Stones and called them the greatest rock and roll band in the world. So I guess Stephen was Stephen Donnelly was his name, and I think he was accepting. He was stipulating to Sam Cutler's opinion there. But he kept telling me I should go see the Grateful Dead. And I kind of, I don't know. I, they don't sound, you know, that sounds kind of hard rock to me. I'm a, I'm a folky. And then I looked at their jet record jackets and they had a song called Ripple. And I thought, oh, great. Another tune about cheap wine. <laughs> and then they had Cumberland Blues and New Speedway Boogie. And I thought, I don't like those art forms. I'm a folk singer. So I imagine as I wrote this, this is a, quote from my new book imagine my surprise when i heard those songs and what they actually were so Stephen persuaded me to go we got tickets to this thing we took what turned out to be a really really large dose of window pane acid each and our designated driver delivered us from san jose into winterland we had some car trouble along the way so we got there really late and we were like the last people in and wound up in the last row of winterland it must have been 120 degrees up there and we missed most of the Sons of Champlain set. We saw the new writers, the Purple Sage set, and I recognized a few of their tunes. And then the Grateful Dead took the stage. And I was so fucking high. And it was so hot. And I was I was really kind of paranoid and didn't didn't feel comfortable for various reasons. I didn't have a great relationship with psychedelics when I was younger. Um, but I got enough of it. I came home and I remembered little bits of things. And as my buddy Donnelly reminded me, we had dinner together a couple months ago and he reminded me and he said, the next morning you went out and got every damn Grateful Dead thing you could find and started making that, you know, learning that music and stuff. So I, I did. I got all the records that I could find and I started recognizing the little bits. I realized that one of the things that stuck with me was Bertha. One of them, when Ace came out, I realized that the that Bobby's guitar style was kind of epitomized in Greatest Story Ever Told and various other bits. And I kind of didn't quite get Pigpen. He did the familiar tunes. He did a big, long version of Good Lovin', but I had no fucking idea what was going on in the jam when he wasn't singing. So that was the first time. But I, I guess I sort of just took to it and started making myself literate in it as soon as possible. And I think the most important thing about it was that it just opened my horizons as a musician. They this, These songs didn't tell you everything they know the first time you hear them. They weren't designed to be catchy and, and get your attention on the radio. They were designed to engage you on various levels over longer stretches of time. And I mean, I don't, you know, I don't even know whether they did that on purpose, but they they created a form of music that rewarded ongoing engagement by giving us something new every fucking time they did it. Thank you, David. And guys, going on to the seventh song, let's hear it.
was Cassidy at Cal Expo in Sacramento on May 27th, 1993. Our first 90s song. Why did you choose that one in particular to lead off the 90s? Because I have a really, really fun story to go with it. That's <laughs> I was uh, a colleague and dear friend, the late, great John Sievert, was a musician, uh, a, a music journalist and a photographer uh, who I'd known for years. And he was, he was assigned an interview with Bob Weir and Jerry Garcia together in 1993. And he asked me to come along and record it. And he asked me if I had any questions he you know, wanted, I wanted him to ask. And I, I can't remember what else I might have suggested, but I said, yeah, why don't you ask them how come Cassidy never jammed into another song? And he put it on his list of questions, and he asked him the damn question, and I recorded it. I was sitting right there, you know. He didn't, I, and, and they, Bob and Jerry both looked at each other and went, I don't know. Never, I don't know. It just never came up. And I, what the, I'm sitting thinking to myself, what the? F why didn't you guys? I mean, it was a natural. Could have gone off in any number of things. It just had never come up. Anyway, I, a few weeks later at Cal Expo, I remind them about this conversation. And they go, oh, yeah, let's see what we can come up with. And so in the second set, they played that Cassidy. And I was really surprised that it went into Uncle John's band, because Cassidy is in E, and Uncle John's band is in G, and it wasn't really, I don't, it, musically, it didn't, it, they didn't really sort of do a, a super creative transition into it. They wound it down, and it, Jerry, wasn't a t total lurch, but it was, you know, it was a fairly graceful pivot, but it wasn't like a musically, like they drifted beautifully and gradually from one to the other but it was still pretty damn cool but i was curious to know why they wound up being uncle john's band but i was obviously gratified as hell that they you know when i reminded them about the conversation they did something about it the only time they ever did something about it but it was really fun to have you know influenced or gotten them to consider that question wow so that what we just heard is the result of your idea that's incredible well, you know, see, I asked, you know, why didn't Cassidy go into something? But it was their decision to make Cassidy go into Uncle John's band. It was quite a surprise. And uh, what the hell? Um, can't believe that both these guys got it. 93. Why can't you believe it? It wasn't that difficult to choice. <laughs> <laughs> so, Steve, you messaged that in immediately almost. What was going on? Um, I was at the first two of those shows. And so the next day, people were talking about, oh, you missed the Cassidy Uncle John's thing. And then, you know, I listened to it later. Um, but it was worth it because uh, the band that I was in at the time was playing a little deal up in uh, the Sierra Nevada. It's called Meat Cutters. Which meat is Cutters. Meat Cutters. Yeah, it's defunct now, but it was kind of a homegrown festival featuring bands from that region. And uh, our job was to wake people up, I think, Sunday morning. <laughs> <laughs> there's like you know three people in front of us but you know oh, i've had that i've had that shift at festivals a few times hi everybody rise and shine that's right beats working you know well the you always they always tell yourself and it's usually true that a lot of people did listen from their tents they come up to you tell you later that they heard your set from the tent but yeah it's sometimes weird playing for almost nobody almost nobody yeah but you know it was uh uh, that, you know, I've, I've got my own stories from those two nights, those two shows. It was just delightful and wonderful in so many levels. And it was one of my good friends' first show. And, you know, I mean, it was really one of those things where it was like, the deck can still do it in 93, right? Like, those were honest to God, grateful goddamn concerts, grateful goddamn and dead concerts. That, and That was uh, the last really solid run I saw. Uh, those shows, and I saw Autzen later in August, and those shows were great. And, uh, you know, and those were the last great shows I saw. So I was at Autzen, actually, now that you mentioned it. I, I would have to think about whether they were better. I I, I don't know. I, I just think of Cal Expo as the last, you know, run that I thought they had their shit together from start to finish. The standing on the moon from August 21st, I'll stand up against almost anything. All right. I'll take your advice on that. I need to go. Yeah, that that also it's has that weird fantastic draw where uh that's the next night where bobby's guitar lunches out and the help slip frank dope and set two on that one's pretty smoking too 
So there's definitely some moments about standing on the moon, literally. And I was relatively sober that first night. And it was so at the final crescendo, it was so powerful. It literally dropped me to my knees. It was so loud and so emotional that I like, I, I just crumbled Thank and it was you. amazing. Thank you for telling me. I'm going to go listen to that. I'm always looking for a show. You know, I have to mix up the years on the Grateful Dead Hour. I don't just play my favorite years, you know. Right. It, it can't just be the 73 show. So I right. mix it up and try and find. <laughs> Although that'd be, a, that'd be a hell of a podcast. It would be a great way to get drummed out of the industry, actually. But <laughs> anyway, I, 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 I will go back and listen to those again. Because I, you know, there's there. it's not that 93 was a bad year. There was a lot of really good stuff in the summer tour as well. But just for my having been there, things got a little more. Pro- like, for example, Cal Expo 94, Jerry just really looked awful. Not great. The Austin shows, if I'm if my memory serves me correctly, were the first shows with the Cripe guitar, the top hat or whatever that was, because it has it has the unique um, kind of acoustic-y sound. Oh, that I hated that. <laughs> it was controversial, and so you know, don't let that sour you on the standing on the moon though, because it's great. I I think that I'm not sure about the technology of that guitar, but that thing of putting piezo pickups on electric guitars has become a, a more robust technology in the in the years since then i think that technology has gotten better because there's sort of um modeling amps and stuff so if you have a good clean solid piezo pickup in your electric guitar you get the advantage of an electric guitar but it interfaces nicely to modeling amps and stuff so i think that's gotten better but i i play a rick turner renaissance and I stay away from modeling apps. So anyway, enough said. Jeremy, also 93, you were not there. How did you figure it out? I was negative five years old. <laughs> what the? Ever, what? <laughs> um, it sounded like, so there was only one, I could only hear one keyboard player. And so I knew it was like, you know, probably post uh, the like Bruce Hornsby being I think he was around like 90, 91, 92. And as the 90s went on, I think uh, Bob's tone got more distorted, um, more so than ever before in the past. And maybe in like the 60s, it was there. But that's what kind of suggested mid early 90s, you know, to me. Yeah, there was there were people who referred to that as Bobby's garbage disposal sound. I always kind of dug that. I thought it was kind of cool. Jerry's playing his tone sounds very like thin at that point as well to me. That's like the one adjective I that comes to mind. It's very well, thin. Yeah. And they, but see, they started this. I forget exactly which thing happened at which time, but they went to in-ear monitors, I believe, in in 1992. And uh, that changed the way they listened to each other. And it changed the way they heard each other. And it changed the way they sounded on stage. And then they went to this thing of everything going direct. And there was a moment, I think it was in 93, but it might've been 94. Do you remember this? That when everything, like Jerry had a, had a, a speaker in a suitcase that was mic'd behind the stage and everybody was going direct into the PA and there were no speakers on stage. And there was a moment in the middle of a song when Dan Healy turned off the PA and the only thing you heard coming off the stage was the drums. It was insane. It was maximum isolation. And I I really, I, and, and I'm not the only one, felt that there was a, a, a great detriment into it. it. It was isolation from one another musically. And, and Jerry's guitar was part of that. I think he was running into this system. And I think there was like, they were using emulation rather than actual speakers and stuff. But I, the the definitive history on that, of course, is Blair Jackson's Grateful Dead gear. And once again, since I don't geek out on the guitars and stuff, this is kind of the limit of my appreciation or understanding how that stuff works. The 93's uh, sound, I think, it, it was kind of like the early 80s soundboards where they're just kind of flat. Uh, but if you listen to the audience recording, they are not flat. And, and 93 is kind of the same way because those... Uh, and the soundboards do have this weird kind of compressed tinny quality to them, but the audience recordings are just fine. 
Well, that's what matters because the you know we these soundboard tapes weren't weren't mixed to be soundboard tapes. They are monitor recordings of the live sound feed, you know, and the quality of the mixes varied according to the needs of the sound reinforcement systems over the years and the capabilities of the sound reinforcement systems over the years. Nowadays, you know, when Dead and Company goes on tour, the the uh, I believe the front of house guy sends stems off to the stage where another guy takes the sub mixes and creates a live mix to go out over nugs.net and then later offline somebody else does the mix for the download version so those things actually get a proper mix after the show but you would not believe how many inputs Derek Featherstone has both in front of him and off to the side. There's a whole nother board that's just for Mickey's stuff. That's like, I don't know, 64 inputs. Or <laughs> that seems entirely appropriate. <laughs> if you got it, flaunt it. Right. So um, we got another tiebreaker here. Let's play the next song. shit david okay i'm sorry whoa uh okay this was a dark star at, <laughs> uh this is a dark star at miami arena on october 26 1989 david uh wild dark star tell us about that one well I, I i you can sort of pick as you noted you can sort of pick this sort of thing at random because the the deeply abstract stuff is easily pulled out of its time frame and can be you know you'd have to be pretty fucking perspicacious to to you know deduce which voices were being used by which guy with their midi adapters you know on which tour so this could be 94 it could be you know 89 anytime after the midi stuff comes along this you know this could be and then you just sort of what are your other clues it, you know does that sound like vince's keyboards or brent's keyboards i chose this particular one on the recommendation of a friend who thinks it's one of the most intense and important latter-day performances of the grateful dead and i'll elaborate on that once you've been through your process here Steve was able to tell the difference. He nailed 89, and he's the champion of Guest of the Year Season 1. Congratulations, Steve. A poll of polls to end the season, and Jeremy, the reason I was laughing, because he sent in a 1990 before you, and I was like, well, <laughs> Jeremy's the champ, you know, like, that's it. And then uh, Steve came in with the 89. Steve, wow. please talk to us. Congratulations. It almost feels like cheating, because I had it on tape. Like, and I agree, I agree with David's <laughs> friend's sentiment, like that dark star. My first show was seven twelve ninety at RFK stadium. And I was in a similar state, David, that you were at your first show. Uh, and that victim of the crime and dark star ground me into a pulp. I was terrified. It was raining. It wasn't just raining. It was storming. 
and I was covered in mud, and I had no idea what was going on. I was surrounded by 64,000 lunatics, and the dead were just kicking my ass into the dirt. And so, like, I have an affinity for those weird midi dark stars. <laughs> <laughs> and so that's, I kind of know that one. So you you had a reasonably uh, accessible first set there, standard stuff. Yeah, yeah. And they Pretty easy going. Thing. Yeah, what, it's really nice. What, what would what would it be like? To, did you know anything about the Grateful Dead? I mean, I'm trying to imagine coming to a scene and and hearing a band play something like Victim or the Crime for the first time. Yeah. Like what the ever loving? Well, so I had some tapes. Like I had six twenty one eighty six. I had one of the eighty two Red Rock shows on tape uh, that I'd had for a few years. That's another story. So I kind of had some idea ish, but I had no clue. I had never been surrounded by 64,000. Yeah, I did. I knew that. But like my biggest problem that day, and I'm not kidding, was I didn't know what to do. I didn't know what to do to the music. I didn't because everybody just started dancing. And I had I was a headbanger, man. I'd seen like Metallica and Pink Floyd and whatever. And so like the the wide open space of what I could do with my body and how to respond to the tsunami of sound Right. And it wasn't until after drums in space and that I, I, rec I didn't know they played all on the watchtower, but I recognized it coming out of space. I, I recognized the guitar and I just started dancing to save my soul. There was no question. There was no decision. I just started moving. And so and, then all and, this other unfamiliar stuff had sort of opened you up to it, and then something you could latch well, on to. Well, what right? Mickey Hart opened me up to it. Okay, <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Yeah. Uh huh. But, I mean, and just, so by the time by the time we got to like familiar territory, I was dancing like a new young man. Wow, that's fabulous! You read you had, well. It was uh, fabulous. <laughs> when you gave up your heavy metal ways. Uh, 100% actually, yeah. Bill Graham Not entirely, me, but... No, I understand. I know a lot of... I mean, hell, Rob Bleatstein, my colleague at SiriusXM, he's a big uh, Pearl Jam. He's like a huge Pearl Jam fan. And I know lots of people who like Grateful Dead and lots of other heavy heavy metal and stuff. Um, what was I about to say, though? Um, oh, yeah, Bill Graham said people... A lot of times people will sort of grow out of certain kinds of music. You know, once the hormones stop raging, the heavy metal doesn't matter quite as much. He said, but people never grew out of the Grateful Dead. People stayed with it. They get into the Grateful Dead in college and they stayed with the Grateful Dead into their lives and into their careers and into their, you know, grandparenthood and stuff. And and it's not music that you outgrow, partly because they kept it growing and they keep it growing. And they were evolving, but they also just created this huge body of literature that you have access, almost unlimited access to. So anybody can become a deadhead right now and get up to speed on 50 freaking years of archives. On You said something that's just so true. Like today I was at work and this is just a quick aside, but like I was out, I was having kind of a thing and I was out walking just to kind of clear my headspace. I was listening to the road Jimmy from today in 73 on the re-listen app. And like the things that I've been through in my life in the last 30 years with this band, these music, like the songs are always appropriate. The songs just keep growing with me. And, and like, what else does that? I, I don't know. Well, that's, that's, another aspect of this music again I, it's not it's it's got a lot of subtlety to it and that too rewards ongoing engagement like you i don't know if, if you would you have gone to like you know four slayer shows in a row <laughs> no because <laughs> it would have been the same show every time yeah. right i mean that you would go to four grateful dead shows in a row because you wouldn't hear you might hear one song twice or three or, or two or three songs twice over the course of four shows but probably not and every performance of the song would be different from other performances you've heard. We engage these songs over time. And that's another great thing. Like you meet somebody new, like we're sharing all these stories about times we were all in the same room together and all that. You, know, you can compare notes and you've, you know, you've been in the same place with people over time. And that's our shared histories is also a part of it. Do you guys listen to the good old Grateful Dead cast? Oh, yeah. Mind-blowing. So damn good. I was just listening to the um, 
let me sing your blues away episode there's this really beautiful little sidebar about the tape collecting and tape trading and there's a great line from harvey lubar who passed away a few years ago and he was just saying he was thinking about all the deep friendships he said you get you sit there with your decks and you'd be copying the tapes and you talk to each other and you learn about each other's lives and he was talking about the incredible depth of friendship and i'm on a mailing list with a bunch of guys that have been trading buddies for 50 years you know it is the, the community that built up around it is as important as the music itself in a way. That's 100% true. And talking about people who can go into the archive and listen to all this new music and ingest it who are not there, Jeremy uh, was not there, did not... Are you literally like 25 years old? Yeah, I'm 25. What the hell are you doing here with all of us geezers? <laughs> you are amazing. You're Thanks. Incredible. How'd you get up to speed? <laughs> through uh archive.org spotify setlists.net i'm a big fan of for you know searching exactly how many times and where and when they played any given song and, and, and how do how do you organize your explorations um that's a good question i don't really i don't think i really organize it that so you much you just pick a date at random or a year at random or a tour at random Maybe yeah or a, like a, a show that's on a dick's picks release or some sort of commercial re release that's on spotify that i that i like um i've used the website headyversion.com a uh -huh. lot to you know where people that's kind of their, a crowdsourced right yeah people vote on their favorite version of a of of a given song uh high time for example like that the one the number one High time on heady version is is very much worth checking out. And how long have you been marinating in this? I've been playing guitar for like twelve years, and then I would say yeah, seven to eight years. I've been listening to the Dead like since since late high school. I would say is when I really got into it. That's great. And my well, dad, is, he's been on the show as well. He's a huge Deadhead and went to like one hundred fifty shows and in his day, and so kind of rubbed off on me, I suppose. Well, Mike, you're 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 pretty young too, so I guess I shouldn't be making age jokes here. Yeah, but I would have been more than one year off on that dark star. It's gratifying <laughs> to see young people getting into this stuff. I know a lot of young musicians too who couldn't possibly have seen Jerry play, but they are deeply into this music and they speak this language. And we knew that. I we had that came up in an interview with Jerry in '81 that this music was going to outlive the people who made it. And he recognized that. And we've all been proving it true. All of us who play this music, you know, it's the songs are uh, have a life of their own. It's it's a folk music of its own. A beautiful way to end the season. Thank you, David, for this completely original, amazing set list and for just lending your insights and your time. And yeah, I, I can't thank you enough. I had a great time. You've probably heard this a couple of times, David, but you are, you kind of joked about it earlier, but your radio show was my lifeline to the dead at a time in my life when like it was really important to me. And so I just, I want to take this opportunity since I have it to thank you for your work because it's yeah. meant a lot to me over the years. That right there is one of the main reasons for having done it, to turn people onto it and to make it available to everybody. Jay Blakesburg says, you know, we're lucky we got that strain of DNA that appreciates this. And, you know, there's people that get it and people that don't. So it's it's always gratifying to, you know, put it out there and see who picks up on it because that's your community. So nice. Thank you. Lovely. And uh, and Steve, congratulations. And Jeremy, congratulations as well. And yeah, thank you again, David. I enjoyed it and I learned a lot from doing it. So thank you. Everybody wins. Thanks so much again, David and all our contestants. I'll spare everyone the thank yous because I did them last week, but thank you, everyone. For all the show links, including our YouTube channel, go to guestthear.net. And if you want to be a contestant on the show for season two, sponsor the show or make comments and ask questions, email us at info at We're going to be taking a break and we'll be back in November with a lot of good contestants and a lot of good curators. So very excited about that. Stay tuned. Shout out to Dylan for drawing the poster this week and every week. Dylan's Instagram page is tagged in the show notes. You can check out all of his art, his animation, designs. Very talented guys. You can see from the posters. So, yeah, 30,000 feet in the show notes. 
Thank you so much for listening. Thanks to the amazing tapers and recordings made this show possible. Congratulations to Steve on winning season one. And to other contestants, thanks for playing. And remember, it's all one song anyway. And I bet you good night. Good night. Good night. And I bet you good night. Good night. Good night.